Coming up. Because leadership is a relationship, I would ask every leader to realize that you have to have some reflection about your actions every day, your conversations and your actions. By reviewing those conversations and interactions, we start to pick up things that we're doing that we could do better. Today on In Session, Leading the Judiciary, we explore how humility is critical to being a successful leader. According to Marilyn Gist, Leaders who intentionally cultivate the six key qualities of leader humility inspire others to achieve shared goals. Marilyn Gist is a distinguished leadership educator and a professor emerita at Seattle University, where she was formerly associate dean at the Albers School of Business and Economics and executive director of the Center for Leadership Formation. She led the development of Seattle University's Leadership Executive MBA program to the rank of 11th best in the nation, according to U.S. News and World Report. Today we're talking with Dr. Gist about her book, The Extraordinary Power of Leader Humility. Our host for today's episode is Lori Murphy, Assistant Division Director for Executive Education at the FJC. Lori, take it away. Marilyn, it's so good to have you. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm excited to work with you. I know that your work recently has involved how to become a leader everyone admires. Say more about what that is. Leaders have to rely on other people to get the work done. They get it done through other people. But if you violate their dignity, you've lost them. You're not going to get what you need from them from a performance standpoint. And in order to get them to really deliver their best efforts, it helps a lot if they admire the leader they're working for. So my work more recently has focused on emphasizing the need for leader humility as a way to help people become a leader everyone admires. So this is a framework that I think more and more people, particularly employees, are beginning to see as critical. You know, we're in the middle of this great resignation and our data show that much of that is dissatisfaction with management and leadership. A lot of organizations are struggling to recruit people, and a lot of that ties to uh, how the leaders come across in interviews. So uh, an important part of my more current work is really around this framework of how do you become a leader everyone admires. And there are two sort of giant components to that, Lori. One of them is the results piece, and that's where most of them focus, and most of them do pretty well at that. But there's another piece we put much less energy into, and it's relationships. So I've learned through my research, Lori, that there are three questions that we ask about all leaders, and these are kind of in our minds. The first one being, who are you? And that's really about what's your character like, not what's your name like. But, you know, what are you really like as a person? Are you going to walk the talk? Are you going to be straight up with me? Uh, are your values wholesome or not? I, I want to know something about who you are. And then the second question is, where are we going? What are you asking me to do? What kind of work? What vision are you setting for the organization? That type of thing. And then the third one, and some people would say this is most important, is do you see me? Do you see who I am as a person? And do you care about that? Or do you just think 
that I'm, you know, here just to do a job. I'm just uh, a functionary to you and somebody that you can bark directions at and then show no concern for. So those three questions, who are you, where are we going, and do you see me? Well, I'm glad you mentioned the word humility because your book is, of course, on humility and and focused on relationships. So tell us how you define humility because I don't know that everyone listening would define it the same way. So I define humility in behavioral terms. It's really feeling and displaying a deep regard for other people's dignity. It doesn't mean that you're meek or you're weak or you're not focused on ensuring the results and that the goals are met, but it means that in in your interactions with everyone, whether it's employees, peers, people above you, that you keep front and center this idea of that person's dignity being something you need to support in order to have a healthy relationship with them. So dignity, regardless of what they're producing or not producing. Correct. Even if they're a poor performer, you need to interact around this notion that their dignity matters. So let me just elaborate a little bit on human dignity. We all have and need a sense of dignity. And I conceive uh, that as having really two components, one being kind of our, you know, our sense in our culture that life itself is valuable. And most of us in our interactions don't go around violating life. But what we do is we violate not the basic dignity about life is valuable, but the personal dignity about I am valuable. And in my sense of self-worth, I have a whole lot of things, almost like a backpack that you can't see. And these are things that I'm proud of uh, that may come from my background. It could be anything from the part of the country I've lived in or the part of the world. It could be my gender, my race. It could be where I went to school. It could be the size of family that I have, uh, the kinds of work or jobs I've done before, the neighborhood that I live in. I mean, lots and lots of things where they're very personal, but people have a sense of pride around them, or at the very least, they have some strong feeling. Uh, And it even could be things we feel shame about, like, you know, gosh, I haven't been able to lose this extra 10 pounds for a long time. So, you know, that could be a a sense of something that affects my dignity, too. So when we're interacting with people, we don't know what's in that backpack. But what we can know is that everyone has one and it's filled with things about them personally that they probably have some strong feelings about. What are some things that you can do as an individual to cultivate and even practice humility? I have identified what I call six keys to leader humility, which are six sets of behaviors that leaders can actually benchmark on and learn because it it is behavioral. So when it comes to the question of who are you, the two real big ones are, do you have a balanced ego or are you super arrogant or on the other hand, super meek. But a balanced ego is confident in a healthy way, but it doesn't run all over other people. It doesn't act superior. 
if there's a power difference by title or whatever, and you go about, you know, issuing directions or goals, but you still do it in a way that's respectful of other people. Do you have robust integrity or are you cutting a lot of corners? Are you saying one thing and doing another? And integrity is also about how you interact with me. Do you keep appointments? Do you follow up on email or phone calls? Do you deliver to me the things I need to do my job that you've said you will get? So the integrity piece is an important part of who you are. And then when we think about that next one, which is the direction you're setting, that's really about coming up with a compelling vision. And that would be one that serves the interests of all of your stakeholders, not just those above you or not just one group. And then ethical strategies, going about that vision in a way that is wholesome, follows the law, does what is expected in terms of regulation, policy, whatever. And then the final one around, do you see me? What people really care about is what I call generous inclusion and developmental focus. So we often hear the term inclusion thrown around today, as we think about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that's fine, that's important, but I mean it much more broadly than that. I'm talking about all of your stakeholders. So they could be citizens of the community, they could be people who are caught up in the civil or criminal justice system. So you've got stakeholders at large, and are you including those people when you make decisions that are going to have a significant impact on them? And then the developmental focus is primarily with employees, but it could be vendors too, where you're taking that person's long-term interests at heart. Do you care about that? Do you even take the time to ask uh, about those interests? Or again, do you just see people transactionally? They're here, they're paid, they're hired to do a job. I don't have to care about you beyond that. Because people know whether their leader does care and they admire the ones who really do. It strikes me that sometimes leaders go off in the wrong direction because they're so focused on the performance side of things. And it sounds like what you're saying is that you will get better performance through a more intentional focus on the relationship side of that equation. Absolutely. And this isn't just uh, because I say so. This is the evidence we have from 20 years of research. Jim Collins was the first person I'm aware of who really did some robust work in this area. And his book, Good to Great, came out in 2001, I believe. And while he didn't go into humility as deeply as I do, in looking at what differentiated companies that were good and stayed good from companies that started out as good and became great over a 15-year period on all sorts of objective measures, what he found was that leadership was the key differentiator and that the leaders of the companies that became great had two primary traits. They were driven for results, so that's part of what I'm suggesting here, but they also had deep personal humility. They weren't necessarily charismatic, they weren't flashy, but people in the organization saw that leader's humility and 
uh, became very inspired to give their best and to become part of the solution to really try to help the organization advance. And so Collins's work showed that these two things together, what he later codified as level five leadership, really is how you get the best out of people. So to, you know, to any leader who's saying, well, you know, I don't know that this matters. This is soft stuff and the results are what really matter. What we would say is that the evidence says that those two things are very linked. If you really want the best results, you cannot ignore how to get the best relationship. Marilyn, in your work, uh, you talk about leaders creating the container. What does that mean? And what does it really have to do with humility? So leaders are the ones who get to shape how the work is done and the environment in which it's done. And that's what I mean by container. So they set the direction. This is the compelling vision, the ethical strategies, hopefully. They also uh, divide the tasks in terms of job skills and who is going to be doing what. Uh, They set the more specific goals for the year or the quarter or whatever it is. And then they also set what I call expected behaviors. How are we going to interact with each other? And sometimes that's explicit. Often it's simply implied. And it's a matter of how the leader treats people and how we talk about other people. Avoiding making jokes at anybody's expense. Avoiding things that are unnecessarily negative about personalities or personal behaviors, avoiding publicly embarrassing people, avoiding public comparisons of one person to another, avoiding saying things that you think are funny, but that could involve negatively putting other people or putting other people in a negative light. Other people see that and it it infects the culture and it infects it in either a positive or a negative way. That command and control leader who's creating an environment of fear or intimidation, what starts to happen in a culture then is people don't trust the leader. They don't feel they can come to that person and uh, say, hey, I think a problem is about to happen because they're afraid they'll get yelled at. They may not trust their peers. It may become a hyper-competitive kind of environment so that they start withholding information. Uh, one of my colleagues, Alan Mulally, that I, I have a great deal of respect for, the former CEO of Ford and Boeing Commercial Airlines, says, you can't manage a secret. If people aren't willing to come to you and let you know where things are about to run aground, you can't provide corrective action. You can't manage that. So the environment of fear and intimidation creates one kind of container, and it's unhealthy whereas the environment that rests in humility and a genuine regard for other people's dignity creates a set of behaviors that the leader models that are different, where we all treat each other with respect, even if we disagree. You know, and we, Lori, in this country right now, could use a whole lot more humility. We have a very divided electorate, a very, very uh, great difference in how people see issues and problems and what needs to be done. And, you know, as long as I've been around, we've had huge policy differences, but it's really relatively recently 
that it has devolved into the kind of vitriolic attacks and disrespect for other people's dignity that we're seeing. And I think when you, when you create a culture like that, it's very difficult to get your best work done because the trust is gone. People are more motivated to win for their side than they are to collaborate on jointly resolving issues and problems. And the same thing happens inside any organization. If you have that sort of breakdown where people move away from respecting each other's dignity, then it's hard to get anything done. So even though we have differences, I think we need to communicate, but do so in a way that supports the other person's sense of self-worth. I'm wondering what it takes to get from that old power and command mode to become a leader with more humility, to to have that sense uh, of caring about human dignity and those six keys you mentioned. So, you know, I outline quite a few do's and don'ts and uh, recommended behaviors in the book. I think it takes a certain willingness to improve and recognition that this is very learnable. I've seen many people make a change and grow in just a matter of a few weeks. It's really not that hard to do. But I think it does take an understanding of what human dignity is and how important that is in terms of relationships. So in my research, Lori, I find that about maybe 15% of the people can't. Those are individuals who are into power and control because they have the egos that want that kind of dominance. And as a result, they have no interest really in changing that style. And it can be abusive. It can really rely heavily on fear or intimidation or retribution, you know, if you say or do something the leader doesn't like. And that's very unfortunate. People will put up with that style for a relatively short period of time if they have other options. And if they don't, they may stay resentfully, but you're not going to get the best out of them. My experience is about another 15 to 20% already get it, and they are leading with the kind of approach that has them already being highly admired by people who work with them. And then it's the vast group in the middle who could really benefit from growth in this area. And a lot of times it's that they don't understand the value of it. They grew up under someone command and control. So they think that's the way you lead. I've seen many leaders stumble into that as they start their leadership career, or they're in an organization that has a culture where other leaders act that way. So they feel they have to act that way too. And they usually don't. I've seen cases, plenty of cases where there's a pocket of a leader who's operating in a way that's highly admired, even in a larger culture where many are not doing that. The big thing that I find causes people to shift is when I can really present the research evidence that shows that you get far better results and a more thriving organization if you shift to this style that involves humility around the six keys that I've just described. So it, it sounds like it might be helpful as a leader to at least be somewhat self-aware. And if you're not, you know, how do you, how do you get there? As you've said, you've seen leaders improve. Well, sometimes in my work, I'm called in as sort of a last hope for someone who is 
creating enough problems in a leadership role that he or she may be at, at risk of moving on, being moved on. And sometimes those are the individuals who move the quickest because they have a real motivation to do so. Uh, other people are, you know, when you talk about self-awareness, they're just going along and they're they're not even aware. I'll give one example of a gentleman I worked with whose employees really wanted to avoid interactions with him because he was so self-focused. He was always talking about himself and his family and his wife's achievements and his kids' achievements. And so when I sat down to talk with him, I raised this issue after having heard from the employees. And he said, well, I'm really proud of my family. Why shouldn't I talk about it? And I said, because they're the ones you need to have a relationship here, not with here, not with your family. So have you thought about coming in maybe Monday morning and asking them, how was your weekend? How was, you know, your kids game? Um, when they mention something that's an achievement in their child's life or their family, you know, honoring that, praising that, showing some excitement. He said, I never thought about that. I just never thought about that. So this gets to the self-awareness piece. And it was something very easy for him to change quickly. And it was amazing because in a matter of just two to three weeks, people saw the difference. They felt more included uh, as opposed to excluded by his interactions. They felt he was interested in them and it just made a huge difference. So the self-awareness piece is important. Some people are really blind to that, but I think because leadership is a relationship, I would ask every leader to realize that you have to have some reflection about your actions every day, your conversations and your actions. There's not a day I wouldn't go home where I didn't review conversations and think of three or four things I could have said or done better. And I think you... You want to do this in the spirit of how do I get better in an ongoing way as opposed to how do I flog myself and feel bad because we're human and we make mistakes. But I think by reviewing those conversations and interactions, we start to pick up things that we're doing that we could do better. There's a book I would recommend by Tasha Urich, E-U-R-I-C-H, called Insight. And she, she's an org psychologist, and she really has a lot of great research behind how self-awareness and insight is so important to management and leadership. So I think it's excellent. That's helpful, and thanks for the recommendation. So what might be different in an organization if all the leaders exhibit more humility? When I've seen organizations like that, and I have, a couple of things happen. One is performance goes through the roof. The other is that people are happy. They stay longer. You know, one example I mentioned in the book was Jim Senegal, co-founder, long-term CEO of Costco Wholesale, who started, you know, <laughs> with a very small organization where they thought maybe one day they'd have five or six stores. And of course, they ended up with hundreds globally. They don't advertise. They've never had an advertising budget. But what they did was to create a culture based on Senegal's humility as a human being. And it just was thriving. And in a, in a retail industry where turnover is rampant, People who st when people stay with Costco for a year, 
their turnover rate is less than 6% a year. I mean, it's just huge. I had so many people come into my program from Costco who just would rave about the company and its culture and, oh, by the way, Senegal, because he wasn't a particularly charismatic person either, but he is a man with deep personal humility, and that just infected that entire culture. And it was about do the right thing, take care of each other, take care of the customer, and the business will rise. And it did. Earlier, you talked about the great resignation, and that is absolutely something that some of our judiciary leaders, not all, but some of them are grappling with. Newer staff that haven't stuck around very long, you know, hiring, retaining staff, etc. How does humility play a role in hiring and retaining staff? You gave us an example with Costco, but what does that look like in a non-commercial entity? Sure. I think there are many ways in which that can play out. Beginning in an interview with that selecting official, the senior leader, for example, take the time to ask about the employee in an, or the prospect, the candidate in a, an appropriate way. Okay, we've interviewed you. It looks like there's a skill match between your background and what I'm asking you to do. Tell me a bit more about you as a person. What are your goals? What are you interested in long term? What are you looking for in terms of a work environment? Do you like to collaborate? Would you prefer to be independent? Those kinds of questions. When you ask those, even in an interview, you give the candidate an impression that this is a leader who's going to care about me. So it's back to the do you see me question, not just what are my skills and what can I do for you, but do you see me? And I think many employees, especially coming off of the pandemic, who are currently looking for another job are very, very attentive to what is the leader like? What is the environment going to be like? So another place you can uh, bring this in is with current employees and the retention issue and doing the same kind of thing. What we have is a mismatch between the employment market and the reality of what people have been dealing with in the last two years of the pandemic. So many people lost their jobs and then they discovered they could still survive because they had to. Many people had to work from home and they discovered they could figure out how to do that and they could operate more independently because they had to. So as we look at bringing people back to work or we're looking at uh, hoping to retain people in the existing work, we need to ask, are we meeting the current needs that people have given that they have also grown and evolved in this time and that they have options? At this point, the employment market is super, super tight for people who are recruiting and trying to find people. So it's it's simply important to realize that the dignity of other people has to factor into your conversations with your current team, as well as people you may be trying to hire. Marilyn, what else would you like to share with our audience about your research? I think the notion that These are actually skills. You know, the six keys are specific skills that can be learned. They're not, you know, cognitive skills only, meaning you can't simply memorize them and say, okay, I've got that done. You have to put it in behavioral practice too, but it's not that hard. Uh, For example, to include all your stakeholders, it doesn't mean having a meeting with several hundred people 
every other day, but it does mean thinking for who's going to be affected by this decision and can I figuratively pick up the phone and let that person know that this is coming down and I'd like to get their input on how it might affect them, letting them know that ultimately I have to make the decision, but I care about what their thoughts and feelings are. So things like inclusion, you know, compelling vision are, are very learnable. So they are skills that any leader can pick up and in that process, move forward toward being an admired leader. Marilyn, where can we learn more about you and your work? Oh, thanks, Lori. You know, my website, MarilynGist.com, has quite a bit of information, both about my work And there's also some background information on me there. So I would encourage you to drop in to www.marilyngist.com. Marilyn, it's been a pleasure to talk with you today. I've got some things I know I'm going to be thinking about and doing a little bit differently in the future. And we're just so grateful that you shared your insights with our audience today. Oh, thank you, Lori. And I want to wish all of you the very best in 2022 and beyond. Thanks, Lori. And thanks to our listening audience. To hear more episodes of this podcast, visit the Executive Education page at fjc.dcn and click or tap Podcast. You can also search for and subscribe to this podcast on your mobile device. In Session, Leading the Judiciary is produced by Shelley Easter. Our program is supported by Angela Long, Anna Glashkova, and the entire studio and live production team. This podcast was produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. Thanks for listening. Until next time.